Hello, and welcome back to Undressed Historia, a podcast that discusses women in history and their legacy. I'm your host, Margot Collins. Today's episode is part two and conclusion on our series on Joan of Arc. So far, we discussed the basic layout of medieval society in Europe and the origins on the Hundred Years' War. We also discussed Joan's transformation from peasant girl to knight. If you haven't listened to part one, I ask that you do so before listening to this one. Okay, let's get back to it. On May 23rd, 1430, Joan armed herself, mounted her horse, and along with her men, joined the fight that was occurring near Compagnie. Once she arrived, the enemy retreated. She was still a fearful figure among the Burgundians and English. Later in the evening, Joan was near the rear of the French retreat to make sure everyone got out, and it was then that she was ambushed and grabbed off her horse and fell to the ground. She then surrendered and was taken captive by the Burgundians. To the French, her capture could potentially be disastrous. Charles VII said very little to nothing about her capture, and those against her from the start on the French side wrote that she deserved it due to her high confidence in herself vanity, and rich clothing. However, the English and Burgundians finally had something to celebrate, and it was recorded that they were so happy about her capture, quote, more than if they had taken 500 soldiers, because they feared no captain or war leader up until that day, as they had dreaded the maid, end quote. Joan was transferred from Clara to Beaulieu-les-Fontaines on May 27th, where she would stay for six weeks. It was at that location that she would attempt her first escape. She came close to actually escaping, but was found by a porter. After that, she was moved to a more secure fortress of Beauvoir and would stay there from July 11th until mid-autumn. Her second and final attempt of escape would be from the tower where she was kept. We don't know exactly if it was an escape or suicide attempt, but Joan fell from the window about 70 feet high. It was a miracle she didn't die from the fall and only had a few minor injuries. The English paid her captors 10,000 livres tournois for Joan, which by the way was a very large amount, and in October of 1430 she was on her way to Rhone to be put on trial. Her trial is lengthy and extremely interesting, and honestly I could do a whole separate episode just about this trial but I don't want to get too far away from my purpose here, so I'm going to try my best to summarize. And before I start, I highly recommend reading more into the trial if that is something that interests you. And I'll try to include more information about it on the show notes on my website. So there were multiple sessions for her trial, which lasted from February to May, and multiple charges of heresy made against her, but I'm only going to go into a few. Heresy, for those who are unsure, is basically an action or belief that goes against the church or Christian doctrine. What you need to know going into this is that she was not tried by the English, but they had an invested interest in the outcome of this trial, so the tribunal consisted of pro-English clerics and those who felt threatened by the English. Her preliminary trial started in late February, and although she was being charged with heresy, the tribunal didn't really have any proof. The first thing they had her go through was a physical inspection to ensure she was in fact a virgin. This was done to her once before, during the three-week examination after meeting the Dauphin for the first time, 
And just to make sure we're on the same page here, the examination was done by women. Joan passed the test with flying colors, which made the English displeased. They were after anything they could use against her. Her virginity, or lack thereof, would also tie into the source of the voices she heard. What I mean by that is if she proved to not be a virgin, then her voices could not have been from a heavenly origin. It might even be voices of demons or the devil in disguise. With her virginity confirmed for the second time, the court asked her about the voices she heard again and again. At these different sessions, they asked her the same questions and variations of the same questions to try and trap her into contradictions. Before I get back into the trial, I just wanted to briefly mention mystics of the medieval age. There were numerous women mystics who had visions and heard voices of saints, and those women, and sometimes men, were held in high regard. From what I could find is that most of these mystics were members of the nobility and the church, or at least most of the ones recorded in history were from these groups. So it is unusual for Joan being a member of the peasantry, but that doesn't discredit her in any way. What is unique in Joan's case is that the recorded visions of other mystics were quite vague in terms of what or when, and also could have been about the afterlife. Joan had specific tasks for her to accomplish right away. The judges and assessors at Joan's trial were determined to find something they could trap her with, and in regards to her voices, it was possible to find what they were looking for. At first, she was more forth-telling than later sessions. She said she heard the voices at first when she was 13, and she knew right away there were good and from God, and they came with a bright light. They asked if the voices were from an angel or a saint. Was it a singular voice or plural? Was there a physical appearance in the light, etc.? Joan realized rather quick that it would be best to be vague. There's record of her saying that she wouldn't tell them everything and that, quote, I am not bound to answer you, end quote. By the fourth session, she named the sources of her voices, that of St. Catherine and St. Margaret, as well as St. Michael. Now, the judges had something to go on, and there's a great moment that is recorded when we see that Joan, despite being an uneducated teenager, is holding her own against her judges, who were all much older than her and much more educated. The example I want to cite is in regards to the voices, and then I'll move on to the next topic. The judges asked about the saints. What did she see? Their faces, their whole bodies, what did they look like, etc.? They asked if Margaret spoke in English, and Joan replied, quote, Why should she speak English when she is not on the English side? End quote. And when they asked if Michael was naked or clothed, she replied back with her own question of, quote, Do you think God has not the wherewithal to clothe him? End quote. I really like to imagine that after hearing responses like that, the judges moved on to something else. But again, they just kept asking more questions, hoping that she would mess up. The next thing about her trial I want to discuss was actually what they were able to burn her for, her clothing. There were two offenses that tie into her clothing. The first was a woman dressing as a man, and the second was a peasant dressing as and performing the duties of a knight. Joan's reason for dressing as a knight was very practical. It was to protect her from rape and other sexual violence while she was living and fighting alongside men. 
During her imprisonment and trial, she continued to wear men's clothing for her protection. And while there was no fail-safe precaution against rape, the men's clothing was pretty much her best option. I'm going to read an excerpt from a source that describes the type of clothing Joan wore for a better understanding. Quote, Two layers of hosen securely fastened to the doublet, the inner layer being waist-high conjoined woolen hosen attached to the doublet by fully 20 cords, each cord tied into three eyelets apiece, two on the hosen and one on the doublet, for a total of 40 attachment points on the inner layer of hosen. The second layer, which was made of leather, seems to have been attached by another set of cords." End quote. All of those layers and secured cords certainly helped protect Joan against any attempted rape. The medieval church's stance on cross-dressing for women was contextual. There were quite a few women who dressed in men's clothing for protection while on pilgrimages, and theologians praised those women who cross-dressed in cases of necessity. So for a woman to dress in men's clothing in order to prevent an assault or attack of some kind was not an issue for the church. However, Joan's judges wouldn't really listen to her reasoning. They asked her if she would comply to wear women's clothing again, and she basically said only if she were given female guards, then she would put on a dress. Joan was kept in a political prison instead of a church prison, so she had soldiers guarding her cell. Had she been in a church prison and being female, she would have nuns as her guards for obvious reasons. They didn't move her. Another part of this charge was that the male clothing she had was very rich. Nice furs, gold cloth, and other fine materials. This shouldn't have been held against her, as her nice clothing were gifts. However, there was a serious concern behind this and that was Joan was dressing out of her rank. To go even further, it wasn't just the clothes. She acted like a knight. She displayed courage, pity, and conviction throughout her time spent in war. If we look at it through the lens of a peasant dressing and acting like a knight instead of a woman dressing like a man, then that has the potential to be a serious threat to medieval society. Now we're at the final week of her life. On May 24th, 1431, Joan was escorted to the cemetery of the Abbey of Saint-Ouen, where a scaffold had been set up. It was explained to her that if she did not repent and sign a document as an agreement, then she would burn. Joan said that she would sign. Instead of signing her name, which she was capable of despite not knowing how to read or write, she drew a cross with a circle around it which many believe was her way of showing to anyone who saw the document that she did not believe what she was signing. By signing this document, that renounced her visions and agreeing to stop wearing men's clothing, she saved her life that day, which the English weren't happy about as they wanted a death sentence for her. She was taken back to her cell and given a dress. After she put on the dress, her head was shaved as part of her repentance. Now there's no trial record of what happened next, but witnesses came forward to say that during the next few days that Joan wore a dress, she was intimidated, threatened, and humiliated. There's even an account of an English lord who tried to rape her. What happened next came from Joan herself. On the 28th, she asked the English guards to undo her chains so she could get up. 
One of the guards tore off the dress she was wearing and threw men's clothing to her and ordered her to get up. She said to the guard that he knew male clothing was forbidden to her and she would not put them on. The guard refused to give back the dress, and finally, after about an hour, Joan, out of necessity, put on the men's clothing. Since she signed off on agreeing to never wear men's clothing again, the judges and assessors took this as a relapse, not caring about the reason she had done it, and that was enough to order a death sentence. On May 30th, 1431, Joan, at only 19 years old, was led to the marketplace in Rhone. She was led up the scaffold and tied to a wooden post, surrounded by kindling, which the executioner set fire to. She died of smoke inhalation, and the executioner was ordered to rake back the fire so everyone in attendance could see her naked body as proof that she was dead, and to also prove one last time that she was a woman and not a demon to the English. Then the executioner added more fuel to the fire and let her body completely burn. Her ashes were then gathered in a sack and thrown into the Seine. Now to try to end this on a happier note, the Hundred Years' War ended in French victory in 1453. In 1455, the Pope authorized nullification proceedings for Joan and the following year, she was pronounced innocent and a martyr. Many of the testimonies given at the appeal showed just how fixed the trial was. The English were highly invested that Joan be executed, and to get their way, they intimidated and threatened those who would have been more lenient to Joan. I'm going to quote a few of these testimonies from various members of the clergy involved in her trial, and I'll make sure to put up a link in the show notes if anyone would like to read the full excerpts. About the trial, we have, quote, According to my perception, as I felt then and still feel, it would be better labeled an intentional and studied persecution rather than a judicial process, end quote. Quote, Many of the assessors at the trial were greatly disgusted by this trial and discontented with the procedure, and that for some of them, their own lives were in great danger, end quote. And as for the judges and assessors, quote, One portion of those who took part in the trial did so willingly and in a spirit of bias. Others were coerced and unwilling, and many fearful. Certain of these fled, not wishing to take part in the trial. It was from fear, threats, and terror that we gave our opinions and took part in the trial. We had the intention to flee, end quote. Needless to say, that shows how unfair her trial was. There was one name I left out during her imprisonment and trial, and that was King Charles VII, and that's mainly because he didn't really do anything to help her. But anyway, to finish this up, in 1909, she was beatified, and in 1920, Joan was canonized as a saint of the Catholic Church. Now to really conclude this, I have one question I'll try to answer, and that's why. Or better yet, what is her importance in the bigger picture? Joan of Arc did so much more than just go off to war. At the very basic level, we see a young woman who encouraged soldiers and helped turn the tide of the war. But it goes so much deeper than that. 
she had a genuine love for her country, which that wasn't really a thing back then. So in many ways, she was one of the first French nationalists, so much so that her image was used on posters during both world wars to encourage others to do their part in saving their country or helping the war effort. As a peasant, she went against societal norms and became a knight. And as a young woman, she rebelled by knowing what she was meant to do and did it, rather than do what was expected of someone of her gender and class. Joan of Arc was an amazing young woman to read and write about. She overcame barriers of sex and class in medieval Europe, and to this day she is considered a national hero and the patron saint of France. If you go to Paris today, there are statues of her in cathedrals and paintings about her life at the Pantheon. At the risk of sounding too much like a fangirl, she was absolutely fascinating. She had no formal education and was born into the lowest social class during the Hundred Years' War, and yet she made a difference. And thanks to her, the course of the war changed, and the French forces were revived by her patriotism and passion. I really hope I gave her story justice, despite leaving quite a bit of detail from her trial out. Thank you listeners for hearing me out on this difficult topic, and please join me in two weeks for my next subject, Cheng Yi Sao. With this episode concluded, I request that you review my podcast on iTunes and any other app you get your podcast from. Currently, we're on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, as well as a few other locations. Any feedback would be greatly appreciated, and I can be reached by email at undressedhistoria at gmail.com, as well as other social media platforms. My website is up and running, so please check it out at undressedhistoria.podbean.com. You can also follow me on there to stay up to date on new episodes and announcements. You can also listen to the episodes on there as well. Undressed Historia is researched, written, and produced by me, Margot Collins. If you enjoy this podcast, you can follow me on the following social media platforms to stay up to date on everything happening. Instagram and Facebook is Undressed Historia Podcast, and our Twitter is Historia underscore pod. Thanks again and tune in next time.